Thank you so much for that beautiful piece of music. One thing I love about being here for both services is I get to hear special music twice every week. It is a beautiful thing. That piece I found out just before this service was actually arranged by Daniel, who was there uh, uh, playing. So he has a wonderful talent. Why invest so much time and effort into being proficient in an instrument if not to glorify God with the talents that he gives you? So I want to affirm him in that. And uh, if you're a parent, uh, look in the bulletin for information about that music camp, which is coming up this summer. So our sermon this morning, the Telos of the Ecclesia, is really going to be a part two of my sermon last week, which talked about responsibility. For those of you who may not have been here, I'm going to try and summarize it in just a minute or so. Uh, Essentially, I talked about responsibility, how it is increasingly uh, the trend in today's world to sort of push back on responsibility, let someone else do it. And we talked about how the Bible calls us not to have that kind of perspective, especially when it comes to doing God's work, but that we should not be taking too much on ourselves, but at the same time, not shunning responsibility altogether completely. And so there's an important balance there, an important stepping out of one's comfort zone where we can grow in the church because just like muscles strengthen with use, we don't want to atrophy in our expression of taking on responsibility. Uh, One day we know uh, from how we understand the Bible that our our privilege to meet in a place like this, to have leadership as we do in this place may be taken away and the work of God still needs to continue going forward in and amongst the fact that we might lose many of the privileges that we now have. And if we aren't used to taking on responsibility now, what hope do we have or do we think we will have when the time comes And it is sort of thrust upon us that we will just stand up and say, sure, I'll do it now, even though I never wanted to do it before. It may happen to some, but for the most part, it won't. So let's start with a word of prayer, and then uh, I'll explain to you what I mean by the telos of the Ecclesia this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you to thank you for the blessings that you give and pour out in our lives each and every day. Uh, We will only truly know when we stand in heaven and our angels no doubt show us all the times that you have protected us that you guided us that you uh, just kept us from harm that we will truly know how much you have done for us we will truly be able to appreciate how much you gave for us when we see the splendor of that city and the adoration that all the universe gives to you Father, I pray that you would be with each and every person here, be with those who are watching online, and I pray be with myself. Help me to communicate clearly, especially on such an important topic as your church. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who speak a little bit of Greek, you know what the title of today's message is. It is using fancy terms for what is the purpose of of the church, which is all telos and ecclesia means. And I love teaching, and part of teaching is learning new vocabulary, even if it's not in your own tongue. And uh, so today you will know two Greek words, telos and ecclesia, the purpose of the church. What is it? Before we answer that question, I want to just give a little bit of an introduction into a question that usually comes before we start asking about the purpose, and that is, what is the church? 
to begin with. This is a question about being, about existence. Before we ask what the purpose for something is, we want to be sure that it exists. And I think it is no surprise to any of you this morning that the church does exist. It is a thing. Jesus established it. He even calls it my church in uh, the Gospels there saying that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against my church. So the question has been, and this has been answered differently throughout Christian history, is it the building, the walls that make up the building, the space, is there something special about it that makes it the church? There was a period of time where the church was considered to be holy ground, where you would want to be buried in connection with a church because the burial grounds of the church would also be considered holy ground and that if you are on holy ground, you are somehow safe, you are in right standing with God, and if you were not, well, then that's a different matter. But I think as the Reformation came along and more scriptural understanding came to light on the subject, there was a shift that moved more from places and things to the church being the people, the people of God. We find that throughout the Old Testament, right? That God still had a church, even though they might not have been called the ecclesia, which is the, the Greek term meaning called out, out of what one might naturally uh, ask. But, you know, there are several explanations. Are they being called out from among their brothers and sisters who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah? Were they being called out of the world and not to be partaking of the horrible practices that existed, to which the answer might be yes for both of those and many more things that God might be calling us to and away from. But yes, the Bible does present in Ephesians chapter 5, you have that famous text where it says that husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave his life for her. So there is this notion where in scripture, God's relationship to the church is often presented as a marriage relation. This is why in the Old Testament, uh, you have the notion that Israel many times committed harlotry against the God of heaven. Why? Because they turned their back on him and they went and followed idols and followed after the pagan practices and so on and so forth. And because of this unfaithfulness, God, uh, particularly in the book of Hosea, but you find it in almost every book, uh, there is this apostasy which takes place and God calls that harlotry. You can go, if you'll turn to your Bible, and we will be turning into our Bibles a lot uh, today, and that is uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul here is writing to the church of Corinth, and he is going to say something again to illustrate this point that God has a people which are his church, which are his bride. And it says there in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul is saying, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. To Christ. So Paul here is describing that he's wanting the Corinthian church to be faithful because he is arranging that they would be married in a sense, have that relationship with God as a spouse would have with another spouse. This is the ideal that is going for him. Paul was very jealous to make sure that the Corinthian church would understand that and that they also would pursue this course of action. What I want to suggest here, and this is all I'm going to give here in the introduction because there have been entire books written on this subject and it could take a very long time to answer the question of what is the church, 
is that the Bible seems to suggest that there is actually a combination of both of these concepts. What do I mean by that? When I read, and we love reading these texts, right? Revelation chapter 21, okay? The earth made new. What is it that the apostle John says that he sees? He sees the golden city, the holy city, descending from out of heaven to the earth as a what? Bride adorned for her bridegroom, right? For her husband. So, but the city is a place. So is the city the bride of Christ or are his people the bride of Christ? Sorry, what was that? Well, exactly. If his people dwell in the city, then the answer to the question is yes, right? It is both the place as well as the people who make up the place. So another way of thinking about this as well is uh, with my growing daughter at home, we have morning and evening worship every day. And when we do that, we call that morning and evening worship. We don't call it church. You ever notice that? We have our devotions. We, we may sing songs. We may spend time reading scripture, contemplating scripture, or reading scripture stories, especially for those who are young, as they're growing in their understanding of what it is. But we don't call that church. We call that worship at the home, family worship. But there's something different that happens when a whole bunch of families come together and meet in a specific place for the purpose of worshiping God, glorifying Him, and so on and so forth. And there are more details that we will talk about when I get into the purpose of the church. But do you see the distinction that's made? It's not so important that the location needs to be specific, merely that a location needs to be present. So one day, let's say we can't meet here at Village Church, let's say we met in a cave, but the cave was large enough to fit all of us, we would say we're still the church. We're meeting together and we're worshiping God, but we need a place where we meet. And the New, the New Jerusalem, according to Scripture, is the place where we are going to be doing this throughout eternity, where we will come Sabbath after Sabbath to glorify and to worship God. And so it is no wonder that the Apostle uh, John there, as he sees the city, says she is as the bride because his people are there. And that is where our communion with God will only continue to increase. So now we get to another question which is the question that I want to concentrate on today, which is what is the purpose of the church? That is not asking does it exist, but why does it exist? What is the reason that God established it? And there are several. And today I'm going to share with you four reasons. I'm going to be concentrating on one, but one thing I want to uh, continue repeating is that all four of them are important. And you will see that as we continue going on. So let's go to the very first one. If you go to the book of Colossians, uh, which is a few books forward from where you were in 2 Corinthians, uh, you have there the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then the way I remember it is go eat popcorn, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Some of you may have another acronym or saying that helps you remember it, but it's a good way to Memorize books of the Bible if you can have some tools to help. So in the book of Colossians, we want to go to chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 16. And here we read, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So what here is Paul writing to the Colossian church, he is saying, 
admonishing, teaching and admonishing one another, something that happens together. Worship is something that takes place together. You can worship on your own, but it is different to the kind of worship you do when you as a church body come together and you sing those psalms and hymns with grace in your hearts and you give thanks to the Lord. There is this notion that, you know, let's go to Psalms 34, Psalms Psalms chapter 34, verse 3. Psalms 34, verse 3, because here David really illustrates this point very well. This is a psalm where David pretended madness before Abimelech not to go to war against his own people. And the Lord delivered him, even though David did not do as the Lord wanted him to do earlier on. And David here is magnifying the Lord. He is saying, happy are those who trust in him. But notice verse 3. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name. What? Together. There is a difference. God did something in the life of David for which David wanted everyone to be happy about. And isn't this so characteristic of what it's like when God does something for me or you today? We don't just say, oh, praise the Lord, he did this. We, we tell our spouse about it. We tell our kids about it. We tell our family members, friends. We tell our church family because we know that it's the same God who's working in their life. And today he worked for me. Tomorrow he may work for you. Next week he may work for someone else. Let's continue praising the Lord together. This is the purpose. And this is precisely what David here is, is exhorting those who, who believe in him as the true king and who are with him. Let's be glad in the Lord. Let's magnify, magnify it with me, not just me on my own. I just, I don't thank God just for what he does for me. I thank God for what he's doing in the lives of everyone that makes up his people, right? This is how we want to be. So I don't think it's any surprise to you that one of the purposes of the church is that it provides an environment in which we can come together and we can worship our creator and maker who does so much for us. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament for our next one. And the next uh, concept here I want to talk about or purpose of the church is the purpose of fellowship. Fellowship. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 24 and 25. Now, I should mention here towards the beginning that these four aspects that I am highlighting this morning, they do somewhat overlap with one another. But I'm drawing a distinction between them because they are different things. It's just that when you do one thing, you may be doing multiple things at the same time. Does that make sense? So, for example, worshiping God together may also be a time of fellowship where you sing together, you share testimonies, and you get to know your brothers and sisters who are here and so on and so forth. But fellowship is what we're concentrating here as a second purpose for the church. And we we read about that here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And it says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, this is at a time, just to uh, remind you, when Christianity was illegal, where it was very uh, probable that if you were found out, you would be killed for being a Christian. Yet Paul is very strong to advise that even though these restrictions are in place, please continue coming out. You do need to encourage one another. You need to stir up love in your midst and good works. And 
the relationship of love with fellowship or with relationship is that it becomes much easier to do some to do something for someone you know and care about than it is for do, to do something for someone who is a stranger. We find this to be true, right? It's much easier when someone asks me to do something if I know the person and they're asking me, can you please help me with this? It's much harder for me to say no. I'm willing to inconvenience myself because I love them. I know them. And how are we supposed to do that in a church where fellowship doesn't take place and everyone more or less seems like a stranger to one another? That's not the way God's people are to behave. You follow where I'm going with this and why Paul is saying it's good for us to have fellowship with one another, get to know each other. There's nothing wrong with having 100 friends, okay? Have 100 friends. Uh, be friendly, Proverbs tells us. One who has many friends is himself friendly. And I'm not here to, to concentrate on this aspect, but it is important to know that the church is set up as an oasis, as a refuge outside of the world where you have people who are much more like-minded as you are than you will find anywhere else. And if you can't encourage one another and you can't love one another and you can't help one another in the church, then you have no hope outside. And that's why Paul is encouraging the believers come together, particularly the closer we get to that day that is approaching. And if that was true for them then, then it surely is true for us today. Okay, the third uh, concept here, let's go to the last part of the Gospel of Matthew. And this is the one that we often spend most of our time talking about when we say the purpose of the church is for mission, right? We have been given a task, there is a ministry of the church, God has ordained it, and sure enough, we read it here in the last part of Matthew. It's known as the Great Commission, although there are many parts in the New Testament that we can go to which illustrate this point. Even the Old Testament was to be evangelistic. If you don't believe that, consider the story of Jonah in a very evangelistic light to those who had uh, no or little knowledge of who the true God was. Uh, so here we find from verse 18, we can read there a Matthew chapter 28. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we, here we have the gospel commission that Jesus picked the 12 disciples, 11 at this point, and uh, he's hoping that they will form along with many others who surrounded them because there were not only 11 disciples, there were many. If you go into Acts, you will see that many who saw him, and Paul talks about this later, after Jesus' resurrection, he was seen by hundreds of people who at this time you could go and talk to them and say, was it really so? It's kind of hard to make up a story like that. Now people read back into it and say, well, that's not possible. They were making that up. But if it was truly written there in the original documents, which I believe they were, at least we have early manuscripts which have this in, then it, it points to the fact that there were people alive at that time who could say, this is fake or this is not. And uh, they didn't. Christianity exploded in the first century uh, in the then known world. And so Jesus here is saying, there is a mission for you. You are to go and make disciples. You are to baptize them. You are to teach them all things that I have commanded you and to observe them and not just to teach them. So there is no question that the mission of the church is one of the reasons that God established. There is more that can be done when people get together. 
right? There's more effort, there's more power in many hands. Many hands make light work. We have all kinds of expressions. The amount of resources we are able to pull, the amount of time that we are able to give is, is increased. Even if everyone is able to give one hour a week, when you consider what, about 200 people that are here now, that's 200 hours a week. That's way more than I can give. There aren't even 200, I think there's, what, 168 hours in a week, if you count the 24 hours by seven days. Uh, so, there's a lot that we can do if we come together. And this is part of the reason that God established the church. But the one I want to focus on the most this morning is the aspect of discipleship. And this is one which carries on from this mission here because the mission is to make disciples. Now, what's a word that we would perhaps better use today as a meaning or as another word for disciple? Because you don't typically talk to many people today who say, yeah, I'm a disciple, right? But you do hear a lot of people saying, I'm a, a follower. Okay, that's a good one. What's another one? You have to speak up a little. A believer. Okay, that's there too. I'm thinking of one that starts with S. A student. Okay, a student. So we don't see many people saying, I'm a disciple of Andrews University, right? But lots of people will say, well, I'm a student of Andrews University, because that's how we use it. But back in Jesus's time, you would attach yourself to a certain teacher, a rabbi, and you would become their disciple. You would follow them throughout the day. You would hear their teachings. They would have theological dialogues with you. You would discuss scripture. They would explain why they understand certain passages a certain way. What are some counterexamples that could be given? How you should answer in return? And so on and so forth. But they wouldn't just discuss theory. They, the, the, the disciples would also follow the teacher and they would see how the teacher washes their hands, who the teacher associates with, who the teacher does not associate with, and so on and so forth. The practical side was mixed in with the theory. You follow what I'm saying? And this is very much what Jesus did in his ministry as well. I wish I could take credit uh, for this idea, but it was a few years ago when Cedric Vine, who is a member in our congregation, did a uh, Vespers series on the Gospel of Matthew. And if I remember anything from that series, although I've forgotten many details, I'll never forget that the way in which he showed the broad strokes of the book of Matthew is that Jesus does exactly the same thing. To Matthew, Jesus was very much a rabbi, a teacher, an educator. And so you have these, these sections where Jesus is just speaking, like the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving theological dialogue and he's, he's discussing with the disciples and the teachers. But then you also find, and you find this several times, he's telling parables all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. You'll see these sections where Jesus is speaking, but interspersed between all of those, you find Jesus doing ministry going out and doing practical things, meeting with the people, uh, going to people's houses, eating with them, uh, performing healing miracles, and so on and so forth. So you have the teaching part mixed with the practical part. And that's what it means to be a disciple, to be a student. Both the theory and the practice have to come together. And we, of course, know this. This is for anyone who's given any thought to this. We know that theory informs practice and that practice in turn informs theory. Sometimes new technologies may come on the scene, and so we need to change the way in which we do the practical side of things, and maybe we need to change the way we teach what we teach, because now there are more efficient ways to, to do that. And this is an ongoing cycle that never ends. Because it never ends, we can always improve. And this is the goal that we want to do, that we want to have in education. 
So Jesus here is very much following this pattern of theory mixed in with practical. But let me ask you a question here. When Jesus says here that we are to teach them to observe all things that he has commanded them, what does that mean? Is that theory only? Or is that theory and practice? It's both. And this is something that we will find as I, as I talk about discipleship here. So let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. We are now in the time of Pentecost. Jesus has been taken up into heaven. The disciples have had the Holy Spirit poured out on them. And now they are preaching. And there are many, about 3,000, who are baptized that day and who are joined to their ranks. And notice what verse 42 says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and what? Fellowship. There we have one of the purposes of the church, fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The reason I find this significant is because they didn't just come to hear what they had to say. They came to also spend time with them. They ate with them. They prayed with them. They watched them, how they fellowshiped, how they talked, how they behaved. And this was something which was important to them. They weren't just interested in the theory. And many times we have to be careful in today's age that we do not mistake discipleship with mere, merely being correct thinking. There is a practical side to discipleship. And that's what I want to focus in on today's message. So let's go to another passage where we also see this, and that's in the book of Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans chapter 12. I will begin reading from verse 1 of Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a, what? Living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So what text do we as Advent, or what context do we as Adventists usually apply this verse to? The health message, okay? And is it wrong to do that? No, it's definitely talking about presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God. So in all that we should do, whether we eat or drink, we should be doing that to the glory of God. But notice what comes next in the rest of the passage. Starting from verse 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this notion is that it's not merely about physical well-being and doing that for the glory of God, but it's also about your mental well-being as well. There are certain things that we as Christians should not be pursuing, but should be rather being transformed, being renewed in our minds. And then he goes on to talk about immensely practical things. He talks about the spiritual gifts and saying, serve one another. We are one body, but we are many members not every organ can be the same thing. So let's use whatever ministry we have, whether it's teaching, whether it's exhorting, whether it's, whether it's a hospitality, let's use the gifts that we have with cheerfulness and show mercy to all. Then he talks about, beginning from verse 9, and that's where I'll start reading, how we ought to behave. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. He's not saying, know that you should do this. He's saying, do it. 
You follow the difference. It's not enough just to know that you should be kind. You should actually be kind. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And he goes on there to the end of the chapter saying, repay good for evil, not evil for evil. This is not a good way. So this idea or this notion of presenting your body as a living sacrifice is not just about your physical health and is not just about your mental health, but it's also about your behavior, your day-to-day behavior. And there is a way in which God is asking us to live, and that is to be more and more like Jesus. Let's go to one more passage back in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. And again, I'll start reading from verse 1. Colossians chapter 2. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? Walk in him. In other words, he's saying, if you have received him, be like him. Walk as he walked, do as he did, say as he did, speak as he did. That is what the the Christian discipleship walk is all about, to be more and more like Jesus. And so here we have this confirmed again. Now we can go through many other portions of scripture which help illustrate this point as well. But what is very, very important here is that discipleship is not merely about thinking as Jesus thought. Notice what I'm saying here, it's not merely that. Does discipleship mean that we should think as Jesus thinks? Yes, we need to try and aim to do that, but that's not all that it is. Is discipleship, is discipleship pardon, merely knowing what Jesus knew? No, and I'm not sure anyone would make this claim because Jesus being God knows far more than we ever will. He being infinite, um, I would certainly wouldn't make this claim but some will say, yeah, if we understand what Jesus was thinking at that time and, and that's all that it, that it takes, like we just need to know that. No, does it even mean believing as Jesus believed? Is that important? Yes. Did Jesus believe that he would be resurrected if he was faithful? Should we believe that? Well, that's important. That's a good hope. Does Jesus believe that being faithful to God is more important than one's life? Yes, that's an important belief to hold as well. There's a lot of faith that Jesus had and that he expressed day to day as he went about ministering and as he went about teaching. And we also need to have that. But it's, 
Discipleship is not merely about these things individually. It's all of these things plus discipleship, at least the best way that I can describe it, is about being like Jesus in every way. That includes his actions. That includes his feelings. Should a Christian have compassion on those who are less fortunate? Yes. Did Jesus, how many times did Jesus, how many times do you read about the disciples having compassion on those who were around them as well? So here's the main point that I'm driving at. And if you forget the whole sermon, please don't forget this one point, and that is this. When we're talking about the purpose of the church, why, what is the reason for its existence? Why did God establish it? We often talk about it in terms of its mission. The church exists to reach outside, to give people outside hope and to invite them to join and come inside. This is not bad. This is one of the purposes of the church, but it's not merely that. It also includes the church exists not merely as an instrument or as an organization to save others, but it exists for the purpose of being an instrument to save you and to save me, even though we're already inside the church. I'm forgetting exactly who said this, but I believe it was Mark Finley. Uh, Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, and don't quote me on this, but... I remember watching a presentation from him, it was a video, and he was talking about how he accepted the call to enter into the ministry. And he was outlining how he felt called because he felt God wanted to use him to reach others and to bring, be the, the means through which others may learn about Christ and be saved to give their hearts over to him. But then he spent enough years in ministry that he reflected back on that call and he said, I was mistaken. I'm paraphrasing here. The real reason God called me to ministry was actually to save me because I needed to be in ministry to become more like Jesus. I needed some rough edges polished. We need some rough edges polished. Where is that going to happen if not within the context, if not within the environment which God established where we are like-minded, where we are supposed to come together and encourage one another and buoy each other up and, and, and remind each other of the hope because life is difficult. Life isn't always fair. Jesus even says, while you're in the world, you're going to have trials and tribulations and there will be suffering. He didn't intend it to be this way from the beginning, but that is the state of affairs that we find ourselves in until he comes and takes us to our true home. Then all of this stuff will be done away with. But my guess is, and this is a pretty good hunch, that we're not going to need to remind each other of hope up in heaven. We're not going to need it then, are we? We're going to have a confidence there. Let's go to the city. Let's worship the Lord. We know he's going to be there. You're never going to have to say goodbye without feeling this might be goodbye. What a beautiful and wonderful place that will be. But until we are there, we need each other. There is a purpose for the church, and it is not merely external, it is internal. And how do we do this? How do we cooperate with God? I'm sort of giving the answer there. How do we cooperate with God to make us more and more like Jesus? It has to be by being humble, being attuned to His Spirit, and by taking on some roles and responsibilities that perhaps... We may not feel comfortable in the moment doing, but it's that little step. I'm not saying we have to go and make leaps and bounds, okay? There is, 
There is a place where someone can take too much on themselves. That is not what I'm calling for. But most of you, I think, if you have time to be quiet and alone, and you just fold your eyes and you say, Jesus, what is it that you would have me do today? I'm almost certain most of you will have a few things pop right into your mind. And it's going to be something along the lines of, please do a little bit less of this, and please do a little bit more of this. You've all heard that voice. I've heard that voice. And sometimes we can rejoice in triumph saying, I did it. I wasn't perfect today, but I did something better than I did yesterday. And other times maybe we bow our heads and we say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to do better tomorrow. I need to remember that lesson. Keep fighting the good Christian fight. There is no wonder then that Luke chapter 14 tells of Jesus saying this parable of a builder who counts the cost before he begins building. Is there, is, is there any reason why Christ was very emphatic to say, if you want to be my disciple, you have to count the cost. You have to deny self. You have to take up the cross and follow me. And that means you may have to think a little bit about what it may cost you because it will cost you something. Maybe it's a bit of that discomfort, stepping out of the comfort zone, not being so comfortable, which is some of the excuses I talked about last week for taking on responsibility. How will we be fashioned to be more and more like Jesus? It's not just going to happen by reading God's word and thinking more along the lines of the Bible, which is the way in which God thinks. It's also going to come by doing, by putting the rubber to the road, as it were, and moving. So let's go back to our original passage this morning, our scripture reading, which is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice, what was that expression there in Romans 12 that was a little bit unusual? What's the unusual word there in Romans 12, the first verse, where it said, present your bodies as a... Isn't that a little bit strange? Maybe we've read it so many times we kind of don't realize it, but the first time I read that, which was quite a long time ago, I'm like, a living sacrifice? I mean, the, the definition of sacrifice is something that dies, right? If you're in the Old Testament... It may be a living sacrifice until you bring it to the temple, but surely it wasn't a living sacrifice when you left. It was sacrificed. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? And of course, we know that, well, it's denial of self. It's about pursuing other things, uh, uh, working for the glory of God. And yes, you're right in, in assuming this, but I believe Peter read a little bit of Paul, and they had a few interactions together, some positive, some not so positive. Well, all of them positive, but I should say uh, some which maybe Peter didn't appreciate. Uh, but as they talked, I think one thing stuck out to Peter, and that's this word of using living with something that doesn't really go with it, like sacrifice. And sure enough, that's what we read here in First uh, Peter chapter 2. And it begins by saying, Therefore lay aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. I mean, this is a pretty bad list, right? Who's he talking to? He must be talking to Gentiles. As newborn babes. Desire the pure milk of the world that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He's talking to believers. He's telling the believers to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. You're in the church. Stop doing these things. It's not good. Coming to him as a what? Living stone. Have any of you seen a living stone? You know, I, I've skipped some stones over a lake. I, I've thrown them off cliffs. I hear a crash. I hear a plop sometimes when it hits the water. 
but I've never heard a rock say, ouch, that hurt, please don't do that. I've never heard a living, I've never seen a living stone. So what does he mean by a living stone? He means a stone that is still in the process of being shaped and formed. It's not quite the way that the master craftsman wants it to be. The master craftsman does want it, but he's still shaping it, making sure that it fits perfectly in the place where he needs it. And he even goes on to use the the example here of the cornerstone, which the builders rejected back in the Old Testament with the building of the temple, where they chiseled the stone in a different place and then just brought it to the temple to lay it. And it's amazing that everything was able to fit as it did, but there was one stone that came early on that everyone sort of looked, the, the chief builders there that said, this doesn't fit anyway, let's cast it aside. They didn't throw it away or smash it. They're probably thankful for not doing that. But they saw that it didn't fit until it got to a point where we need a kind of unusual rock that fits here. Oh, someone was thinking about that ahead of time and sent it to us. And sure enough, that's the cornerstone, the the stone that would bear the most weight in the building. And yet this was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So we are to be these living stones. We are being built up a spiritual house. We are being built up from the inside. We want to draw as many people from the outside to join with us and to become those living stones and become part of the building, part of the fabric which makes God's people. But it is not something that we can do on our own and it is not something that we can do without taking on of responsibility. Again, I want to reiterate here that as I have discussed these four areas, that the purpose of the church is to worship God together, to fellowship together, to engage in ministry and do mission, and also for discipleship. That it is not any of these which are held exclusively above one another. We cannot say that the purpose of the church is merely for worship and fellowship. For some of us, maybe that has been the focus of our Christian walk. It is there for worship and for fellowship. Maybe I can support with a little bit of money what's going on, but not with my time, not with my effort. Maybe you support it a lot with your effort and time, but you're not that keen on fellowship. All of these are important. They work together. That's the purpose for which God established them. Can you think of me asking me, why do you love Christina, your wife? And I tell you, well, I love Christina because she cooks for me. Surely your response would be, is that the only reason you love Christina? Now, do I love that she cooks for me? I cook for her sometimes. Yes, it's nice when you have a long day and you come home and the house smells amazing. Bread has just come out of the oven and you're just like, I can't wait to dive in. Yes, it's beautiful. It shows me she's, she cares about me. I do things for her as well. The relationship requires both. But it's all of the things together which make the relationship, not anything on its own. And that's what's important. As we're talking about Christ and, and his people being the bride, it is all of the purposes which need to work together to make us more and more like Jesus, not any one of them being exclusive. You know, I was thinking just just a second ago, how do we define when discipleship is complete? When can someone say, I am no longer a disciple? What is the goal of discipleship? Surely the goal is to be like what? 
Jesus. So can we say we're ever there? So then is the process of discipleship ever complete? So we're students forever. (laughs) Even in eternity, we will be students. We will be learning to be more and more like Jesus. Though I think the lessons will be easier to learn on that side of eternity than they are here. But this life is preparing us for that. It's, It's important because sometimes we say that discipleship is just bringing someone into the church or after they come to the church, maybe we disciple them from, for about a year or so and then they've been here long enough, they've made connections and then it's, it's sort of over. But it isn't. It's not over until you become like Jesus. And unless someone can raise their hand and say, I'm fully like Jesus now, then we're all still disciples, we're all still learning and we each have our own step to take to be moving towards that goal. As I end here, I want to read to you just a few quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy, which I helped just drive this point uh, all the way home. The first one is found from Testimonies, uh, Testimonies to the Churches, uh, Volume 9, page 21. Notice what is written here. Not all the books written can serve the purpose of a holy life. Men will believe not what the minister preaches, but what the church lives. Too often the influence of the sermon preached from the pulpit is counteracted by the sermon preached in the lives of those who claim to be advocates of the truth. Isn't that true? It's not about what you read. Someone can be given the Bible and read it cover to cover and just say at the end of it, that's very nice, but I don't believe that. There has to be a humbleness of heart. There has to be people around them who are examples who will encourage them and hopefully give them more to think about even then it's still a choice they have to make and God forces no one one more quote here from councils to the church page 63 it's saying he Jesus walks in the midst of his churches of his churches he desires to sanctify elevate and ennoble his followers The influence of those who truly believe in him will be a savor of life in the world. He holds the stars in his right hand, and it is his purpose to let his light shine through these to the world. He thus he desires to prepare a people for higher service in the church above. Lest you think that responsibility ends here in this side of eternity, there are more responsibilities to take on on the other side of eternity. This is just growing us and making us ready for the church above. He has given us a great work to do. Let us do it with accuracy and determination. Let us show in our lives what the truth has done for us. Again, that last sentence there, let us show in our lives what the truth has done for us. If that's not, let the theory become practice. I don't know what is. It needs to be a both and. True education is both knowledge but it also empowers you to do certain things. And that is what I want to leave you with here this morning, this notion that will you take whatever the next step may be for you? Will you allow God to work through the church to make you more and more like Jesus by giving you opportunities, by providing the context in which you may need to sacrifice a little bit more, may need to be inconvenienced a little bit more, but may also experience the joy the joy that Jesus experiences when someone comes to him. 
If you're not in the work, you don't understand what that feels like. You know, sometimes there are projects, surely, I hope, most of us, maybe those who are really young in the audience don't, don't quite have this experience yet, but for most of us, we've had some project that has really frustrated us. And it's kind of been like, man, when is this going to be done? And I want it to be finished, but it has to be done properly. And we, and we, we persevere and we get it done. And at the end of that, what do we feel? This sense of accomplishment. Yes, I did it. We take that sigh of, oh, finally, whether it's building, whether it's organizing something, whatever it may be, there is this satisfaction that comes knowing that that effort wasn't spent in vain. And I can guarantee you that any effort, any strength, any resources, any time you put into the work of God, you will never say, man, I regret that. You will only say, I'm glad I had the opportunity to be a little bit more like Jesus. And that's my hope for each and every one of you today, as it is for me as well. So let's stand as we sing our closing hymn, uh, number 492, Like Jesus.
pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you because this is our prayer to be more and more like Jesus. Father, I pray that you would instill in our minds this notion that wanting to feel as though we have meaning in this world comes with taking on the mantle of responsibility for the work which you would have us to do, whether it's in our personal lives or whether it's corporately as a church body. Father, I pray that our commitment to you and the work which lays before us would ever continue to increase and not diminish. Please forgive us for the times that we have been unfaithful. Forgive us for the times that we have let you down in our actions, in our words, perhaps with others around, and when we have preached those sermons which do not testify to that which we know to be true. Give us strength, Lord. Give us wisdom. May we continually hear that still small voice which comes to us in love, asking us to climb ever higher, ever higher. I pray, be with our families, be with our children, Lord, be with our parents and grandparents, be with the grandchildren, Lord, be with all of our friends, especially those who do not know you yet, and help us to be the kind of people you would have us to be at this time in Earth's history, so that while there is still time, and we know that time is short, many may come to know you and at least be given the opportunity to choose to give their hearts over to you. We pray, continue to use us, continue to mold us and make us as living stones so that we may be built up into your holy people, that chosen generation. Ambassadors for you at this time in earth's history, not afraid, being kind to everyone, but standing for the truth. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.